0: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it.
1: We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without. Thus, Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around.
0: You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's angry that is, angry that is, angry that is. I'm Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist.
2: I'm Michael, the ex Mormon apologist.
0: I'm Paul Bunyan. Let's get into it. Going
2: on a mission is one of the most iconic parts about being a Latter day Saint. When you're a child, you idolize the missionaries. You sing songs like, I hope they call me on a mission. You spend your life preparing, dreaming of going, and watching your relatives leave for two years, only to come back more mature and stalwart in their faith. Then the moment finally arrives and you get the call to go somewhere foreign and exciting, to preach the restored gospel. It's an experience like no other. The bond you make with your companions, the heartfelt discussions with investigators, the strange foods you have to eat. Often members of the LDS faith feel closest to God during these missions, and they are filled with spiritual experiences that bolster the faith of the missionaries. Paul, Matthew, and I all had the opportunity to serve two-year missions for the LDS church. In this episode, we'll be setting up a hypothetical situation We'll be asking the question, what if our younger missionary selves knocked at our doors, what would we say to them now that we've crossed over to the other side? All right, Paul and Matthew, tell me again where you served, what language you were speaking, and tell me about the strange foods that you were fed
1: on your missions. Who wants to go first? I'll go first because, Paul, you probably ate some weird stuff on your mission, so I'll, you know, I'll let, I'll let, I don't want to you know, follow that act so uh so i served in the belgium brussels netherlands mission but uh it was two different languages in that mission so one side the northern side which included the netherlands and um the west northwestern part of belgium they spoke dutch and the southern part southwestern southeastern part excuse me of belgium uh, which is called the wallonie and the northern part of france that was in our mission um that was the french-speaking side so i sp- so i served in the french-speaking side although. I did serve as an office missionary, so I was able to visit uh, several Dutch-speaking cities, which was pretty cool, and I got to talk with a lot of those missionaries there, and I also served in Brussels, where since it was an international community, because they have the European Union there, there's also a lot of English-speaking you know, Americans and military and things that, and people that, that visit there, so we were in an English-speaking branch, but then they mixed it with the French-speaking branch, so half the branch couldn't talk to the other, or half of the ward couldn't talk to the other half of the ward, so it was Kind of a mess. It was an experiment. It, it, like they were literally merging the two at the time. So, so it's I kind of, so of I, yeah, a little bit like that. So, so I spoke English and French in in that town. But yeah, so mostly French. As far as the weirdest thing I ate, um so a lot of the people that we taught and a lot of the members were from Africa. So, I think the weirdest thing I had uh, wasn't it wasn't Belgian food. It was something. I think they were Cong- they were from Congo, and I think it was some kind of tripe, some kind of uh, cow intestine type thing. And I never had that before in my life. And they, they, it, was, it was really good because they s- soaked it in this really spicy sauce. I liked the sauce part. But eating it tasted like you were chewing bubblegum. But then you were supposed to swallow it, which is a really weird <laughs> combination, you know, the, the texture of bubblegum, but you're supposed to swallow it. So, yeah, it was just really strange. It was like when you bite into it, your teeth bounced back, you know. It was like chewing on rubber bands kind of a thing. So, yeah, that was probably the weirdest thing I ate.
2: So you've chewed on rubber bands. Um, yeah, essentially. Yeah.
0: Cool. Do they so in the French part? Did they ever have like escargot? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you yeah, have you it? Did.
1: Yeah. I, so you can buy it. Even you know how you kind of have like the Walmart brand products. You know the cheap stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what we bought as missionaries since we were kind of poor. I bought some just like cheap brand escargot, and you put it in the put it in the oven, cook it a while, and you try it, and it was pretty good. So I think that was mm-hmm. the only time I had it.
0: Okay. When we when Angela and I were first married, we. We took the, our oldest girls to uh, Taste of Cincinnati uh, Festival downtown. And, you know, all of the local restaurants come out and put up booths, and you can, you know, pay a couple of bucks per booth to try different foods. And there was a pretty fancy uh, French restaurant that had a booth down there, and they were selling escargot. And I had never had it, and Angela had never had it. So we were like, well, you know, why not, you know, try something new. So we, I think we laid down like $3 for some escargot. And, um, I, I took, took one and started to chew on it. And it was the most bitter, horrible thing I had ever tasted in my life. And it was like, it was the way I described it to Angela. It was like chewing on one of those, you know, rubber balls that you would get out of the machines when you were a kid. (laughs) And, uh, she, she wanted to try it. And I was like, no, you you don't want to try it. (laughs) You don't. So it was a waste of $3, but you know, it was just one of those situations. So,
1: did did Um, it have any like, did it have any herbs or flavors that they put on it, or was it just straight as cargo?
0: I mean, it must have, but it was whatever the flavor was, it was very bitter. Huh. So,
1: because typically they put some kind of like butter or garlic or, mm -hmm. you know, something on there to make it more tasty. But if it was super bitter, yeah, I'm not sure what that would have been.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'd probably try it again, but I don't know. We'll see. Uh, so to your question, Michael, um, I served in Hungary, uh, spoke the Hungarian language and, uh, there was one mission, uh, in Hungary. It had been split off from the Austrian mission. Uh, I think, uh, they started sending missionaries into Hungary in, in 89 from Austria. And then, uh, I think 90, I think 1991 is when it was actually split off as its own mission. It might've been 93. I can't remember exactly. Um, but, uh, I so what a couple of things that were a little strange that I ate there. One, one was, um, well, to me, it's not really strange. They would make like a cherry soup. Um, so like a cold fruit soup. Uh, it was cooked, but then they would let it get cold to eat it. Um, and I really liked that. Um, but we went to, uh, in one of the branches we were serving and we went to the Relief Society president's house for uh, a meeting one time and she was making cherry soup, but it wasn't. It wasn't going to be ready till the next day, but she fed us and she gave us some cherries that she had left over to eat. And my companion at the time did not like cherries. And of course, as missionaries, you're taught to eat whatever you're given, you know, don't, don't offend people. Um, so he was like, Nuremberg, eat my cherries. And I was like, no, I'm not going to eat your cherries. You got to eat your cherries. And I, made, I made him choke down a bowl of cherries and he, and he was literally choking them down. And I was like, I'm not eating, I'm not eating your cherries. Uh, I was just like that. But, um, the strangest thing is probably fish soup. They, they make a, a soup using carp, um, cause it's a very cheap and, uh, available fish for them to use. Um, and they, they basically just throw it in their hole and, and cook it up with, um, you know, a bunch of paprika and other spices. It, it ends up being really spicy. Um, and I, I actually didn't mind it too much, but um, you get like everything in there, like the eyeballs and the reproductive organs and everything are, are in the soup and cooked in there. And um, there was this one investigator. Uh, we would, we would teach English to her daughter and then we would you know teach her, the discussions in my last area, and so I had a greenie at the time, and I was for those who don't know, a Greenie is a brand new missionary first in their first area, and I'm in my last area getting ready to go home and Every Tuesday night, when we would go and uh, teach this this young girl English, her mom would uh, cook us dinner, and you know each week she would put um, our names into a hat, and then she would draw you know, to see who got to pick what she made for dinner the next week. Um, So she picked, but she picked out my name one time and I, I chose fish soup because I was messing with my greenie and telling him, you know, you're going to have to try this. You know, he's like, no, I don't want to try it. I'm like, well, if she picks my name one time, you're going to have to try it. (laughs) So when she picked my name, I, I made her, uh, I told her I wanted fish soup and she was surprised because usually missionaries don't want that. Um, But she made it the next week and it just so happened that, uh, my greenie was not with me. I ended up splitting with a different missionary that week. So uh this other elder had to go with me and eat fish soup and he was not happy about it. And uh he he was, you know, eating through it and he's like, What's this? And she was like, It's the reproductive organ of the fish. And he was like, Oh, it's just horrible for him. So yeah, that's 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 my story. <laughs> wow.
1: I was going to mention real quick, too, like there, there was another meal that came to my mind that was also African. I'm not sure if it was stranger than the tripe, but it was definitely awesome uh, and weird. But it was it's called fufu. I don't know if that's the actual name of it, but we just called it fufu. And uh, like so Africans would buy these big bags of fufu flour. And it's like you just basically mix it together and make kind of like a paste almost like you kind of fry it up in a in a skillet. Add some oil and and, I think it's just water. I don't know. So you're making some kind of like bread and you put it into a pan, right? And then you kind of let it set. So you let it set for a while and then it kind of really thickens up. And then you make soup with it, which usually consists of like some kind of meat, like beef or pork or something. And then you mix it with tomatoes and vegetables. And then you also put peanut butter in there. Sounds kind of weird, but. And then you can put like fish sauce or whatever else you want in there. And then you mix it all up and then you take the foo-foo. So like you take, you kind of scrape it with your fingers, the fufu flour—it's kind of like a paste kind of stuff. Then you kind of mix it in with the the, the soup and then you eat it that way. Oh, it was awesome. It was good stuff. But like it, it almost like hardens in your stomach. You know, it's almost like you got a brick sitting in there. So we made it once in our apartment with like six missionaries. We all ate the fufu flour and the soup and it was so good. But then we just like all crashed in our beds for like an hour and a half. We all just slept for yeah, like half of our p day just because yeah, it was just too intense, too many carbs and all that. Wow.
0: All right, Michael. So you're not getting out of answering this question.
2: I just, I feel bad because I'm not going to have as cool of an answer as you guys. Uh, so I went to uh, Anaheim, California, and I learned how to speak English while I was out there. Um, and so, yeah, I ate a lot of normal food the whole time I was out there. I remember one of my family's friends came and visited the ward I was serving in, and they went back and saw my parents, and they're like, how's you know, how's Michael looking? And they're like well fed. <laughs> um, Ouch. So Gotta yeah, hurt. I mean I I got fed by the uh the members pretty much every night. Like there was never any any wondering when my next meal was going to come. So yeah. Um I think the you know the weirdest thing I ate is probably a toss up. I mean there were some other cultures out there, so it's not like I never came across food that I wasn't used to, but, um, kimchi, if you guys are familiar with that, uh, it's like Korean cabbage kind of dish. They they bury it, right? I'm not sure what they do with it. I, but it's, it's very, it was very strange. I didn't like it. Um, but the thing that really took the cake was a piece of Mongolian cheese that somebody gave me and my companion, And she's like, we were at this lady's house. We were talking to her. And she's like, you want a piece of, you know, Mongolian cheese? And we're like, yes, that sounds great. It's so, it was so dry that it's like, it sucked our mouths like dry, like just eating it. And we're just like trying to chew this stuff down. And it was just very, very tasteless. And I'm like, why? (laughs) We I couldn't even swallow it. I just left it in my mouth trying to be polite until we walked out and then we both spat it out because it's like (laughs) i don't even think this is edible (laughs)
0: like i don't sounds like a drug deal hey you want a piece of mongolian cheese (laughs) yeah
2: (laughs) yeah (laughs) she's probably just looking for a way to get rid of it and she saw us and was like ah i can pass the curse on to them so yeah i'm sorry if any of the listeners love cheese from mongolia um but yeah, it wasn't wasn't the best
1: experience for me. Did they at least tell you what animal it came from?
2: That is a good question. <laughs> um no, but yeah, it, I don't think it was from
1: a cow or a goat or anything. They forgot to tell you it was like, I don't know, something weird like raccoon cheese or something.
2: Oh, they didn't they didn't tell me at all where that cheese, what animal just the region that it came from. Okay. But if I had to guess, it was something extinct.
1: <laughs> prehistoric <laughs> yeah. no it's probably goat or something like that yeah like goat cheese
0: yeah Yak. yeah yeah
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah all right moving on to the next question guys I'm going to ask this one to uh, Paul first what would you say to yourself if you came over as a missionary and it was your first day out on your mission
0: you know this is a really good question because you know a lot of times uh I'll see, uh, especially if you hang much in like the Mormon stories group, you see people talk about their missions and sometimes they really are angry and feel like it was a waste of time. Um, I don't feel that way about my mission at all. Uh, I think it was a good opportunity for me to get out um, into another culture and learn to love and serve people. Um, and so what, what I would say to my younger self, if I, if I came across myself on or any missionary really uh, on their first day or in their first week or whatever is just to um to really do that learn to love people um learn to serve people um you know a lot of a lot of young kids go out and especially when i was out a lot of young kids went out because of societal pressure cultural pressure within uh, the lds church and it might it might not have been something they would have chosen for themselves if you took away that cultural pressure um I know that was certainly the case for me i went out because it was something my mom had taught me for a long time was really important to do um so i would i would tell my younger self to love people serve people and pay attention to people um because i came across people who uh god used to teach me things that were important so that's what i would say all
1: right what about you matthew yeah, that's all great advice. I would see for me personally, uh, if I were to give advice to myself when I was starting out on my first day, I really struggled with um, I really struggled with feelings of inadequacy. Uh, I was also really, I was told by lots of people on the street, like, wow, you've only been in France for a week and a half or two weeks. Like your French is great. You know, they would always compliment me on how well I was able to speak French, but I, could, I couldn't understand a word anybody said, you know, it, I, it took me like at least six months before I could even start to like put sentences together because French is so fluid, you know, it's so, you know, the words go, it's hard to parse out every individual word. So it just took me so long to figure out what they were saying. So I just really struggle with depression. And like, I cried a lot in my first transfer. Um, So I would probably just tell myself just not to worry about it. You know, just it'll come in time. The language comes in time. Um, You know, that's just one barrier that takes time to get over. But um, just also just, Take the time to, like Paul said, you know, really try to interact and really try to understand the people you're talking to. Um, That's something I tried, but the the language barrier just kind of pushed me. You know, I'd I'd ask them, hey, do you have kids? They would say a whole bunch of stuff. And then I was like, okay, uh, so uh, I'm assuming you said you had kids. (laughs) So I would kind of try to continue the conversation when I couldn't really understand what they were saying. But yeah, just really try to connect to people and and, um, not worry so much about, you know, making sure you try to save everybody because I felt like there was just this huge weight of like, I've got to, I've got to preach the gospel and, you know, their salvation is on my hands. And if I don't do well enough, then that can mean mine condemnation. So just, you know, just not worry about it so much and just enjoy the experience and take the time to, you know, the, the proverbial smelling the roses, you know, enjoying your experience, taking the time to enjoy the culture, to, to learn about the people and, and try to find time to have some fun learning, you know, going to museums or whatever, because mm-hmm. so much, some, there are so many PAs where, you know, I was, where we didn't do that kind of stuff. There were PAs where we did go visit cathedrals and historical sites. And those were some of my most memorable times. So definitely take the time to appreciate the culture and, and visit when you can.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. That's one of my favorite things that we did as, as missionaries. There were, there were days when, P days when we would, you know, go out on the Island and, and play uh, frisbee golf or, you know, do, you know, different things like that, play basketball. But a lot of times we would go to museums or cathedrals and, um, or the, the communist statue park or, you know, whatever, uh, sightseeing things we could do. And, um, definitely, uh, those are some of my best memories as a missionary.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite experiences was when we visited a Holocaust museum outside Brussels. And, uh, I mean, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It was very humbling. And they have, they had like, uh, pictures of people that were in the, you know, that were at the concentration camp and they had audio too, of interviews of people after they had left and the experiences they had. And man, it was intense, but you know, it's like, that's why I just don't get the Holocaust deniers. It's like, I've been there, you know, I've seen the concentration camps, you know, you can't deny the history. So I think that's something that we, that our generation really needs to tap into is just connecting to history. Good. Those are good answers, guys.
2: Um, I was kind of thinking about this too, and uh, kind of to echo what you were saying, Matthew, um, I had a lot of feelings of inadequacy too. Not because I didn't speak the language, because that I had down, you know, mostly. Um, But I was, they kind of put me with this trainer named uh, Elder Danis, and he was just a beast. Like he was, you know, it's just so bold, so persuasive, you know, I'd see him talk at people's doors and like, he almost never got turned away by people. And no matter what their objections were, he would just find a way to turn it around and and start talking to them. And I'm like, man, you know, he baptized so many people. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm never going to add up to these other missionaries that are out here. And, you know, I had a lot of members of my family that just had these crazy experiences on their mission. Um, Then I had younger brothers that had patriarchal blessings that said they were going to have all these miracles on their missions. And I'm like, you know, there's all this this pressure on me to be this amazing missionary. And I just didn't believe that I could be. Um, so I think the first thing I would I'd probably tell myself is just to stop doubting myself so much. Um, I just had a lot of self-doubt. I just, I probably just tell them, like, tell me, you know, you'll be able to teach just as well as, as these other missionaries, you know, by the end of this, you know, just, just give yourself time. Uh, So I think that'd be the the main thing. Um, That's probably the main thing I would tell myself at any stage of my life is just, you know, uh, don't doubt yourself so much. Don't, um, I I guess don't ruin yourself like that. Uh, But the other thing that I would encourage him to do is to start diving into the scriptures. Uh, I think it was probably three, and a half months into my mission when i really took an interest in it and you know i i don't know if i would really go that deep into into doctrine right away but I w- if nothing else i would encourage my younger self to really start studying the scriptures and and finding the answers there just knowing how much how much i would love it later you know uh what an impact that would make and so i'd probably just want to get that ball rolling a little bit more but uh, I think that's what I what I would tell me on my first day
0: yeah that's good I, I'm glad you mentioned the scriptures because I've mentioned before that that I had set a goal for myself to read all of the standard works while I was on my mission when I was in the MTC and and I did that um, and that uh, that process of of studying through the, you know when, when I got to the Old Testament and then into the New Testament studying through the Bible um, really for the first time reading every page and every story and uh narrative that's in there um it was a different experience than i'd ever had before um and it it uh it changed me you know just reading through it and it gave me a a foundation i think in understanding um both my religion as a latter-day saint and how things how christians view things differently so speaking of christians matthew Um, I'll ask you first, but
2: did you, um, did you encounter Christians on your mission? Um, if so, how did they treat you and what was your impression of them?
1: Yeah, it's when, when I was reading this question, I was thinking back and it's, maybe it's just the the fog of time, but I don't really remember having a ton of conversations with Christians. I do remember I had conversations with Catholics and most of them were kind of nominal Catholics, uh, cultural Catholics, um, I do remember going to, I think it was some kind of Pentecostal church. Uh, They invited us to a service of theirs, so I attended that. We didn't really have any deep theological discussions. We kind of just attended. I didn't know them personally. It was another missionary in our district that got the invite, so we we went with them. Yeah, I don't really remember a lot of conversations with Christians. So I do remember (laughs) we were proselyting on the street one time, and uh, someone just quoted to us Galatians 1, 8 through 10, I think it was, you know, the one where Paul says you know, if you preach, if you preach any other gospel now, which we have given to you, let him be cursed. (laughs) I think they just, they didn't even say the, they didn't even read the passage. They just said the reference Galatians one, eight through 10. We're like, okay, uh, have a good day. And then I looked it up later. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's what they were saying. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have much of an impression to be honest, just because I didn't really interact with any really, you know, Christians that were really, you know, strong or really, really hardcore in their faith, I guess you could say. So I didn't really have much of an impression.
0: Fair enough, Paul. Um, yeah, so I've, I've mentioned before that the the Southern Baptist Convention had their, their big meeting uh, in Salt Lake City the year that I was leaving on my mission. And so I remember them going door to door. And uh, I remember thinking at the time that, you know, that was persecution in some way. I don't know. I don't know why I thought that, uh, because I, at the same time, was going door to door with Latter-day Saint missionaries who were, Uh, serving in Salt Lake City as kind of like a training opportunity for those who were getting ready to leave. And um, so I don't know, I don't know why I saw that as persecution, but I did. Um, So my my impression of Christians was that they didn't think we were, we were Christians as Latter-day Saints, which they generally don't. Um, And in terms of how they treated me on my mission, um, it's a mixed bag, you know. Um, I don't know that, I could ever say a Christian slammed the door in my face. Um, I did get the door slammed in my face a lot, but I don't know if those people were actually Christians. You know, that, that those interactions didn't last generally long enough for me to know for sure whether they were Christians or not. Um, a lot of what we got, because the Hungarian is, or Hungary is, is largely Catholic. Um, there's some pockets of Lutheranism there. Uh, there's one city, uh, Debrecen, that's very Calvinist. Um, very reformed and, uh, but when we would go, uh, knocking on doors, we would, we would get what we called a lot of times the, the double backed L people would like put up their hand like this and be like, you know, I'm Catholic, leave me alone. You know, um, that's what we got probably most times from people who were, uh, religious in some way. Um, but there, there was, you know, one time when we, uh, tracked it into, uh, and by tracting I mean, knocking on doors. Um, we, uh, knocked on the door of a guy who was a, uh, Lutheran pastor and he invited us in and it was kind of like the proverbial Bible bash session for a couple of hours with him. Um, he was very strident. Uh, so that was, I kind of took that as a, a negative experience. Um, but it, it was still an experience that, uh, that I came away with realizing that, you know, there's, there's some areas where I really Couldn't defend my faith, Um, but then I there was another time when I tracked it into we tracked it into a a, a young Baptist couple. Uh, They were also Hungarian, um, and that it was husband and wife, and they had a young child. And he was a Baptist missionary in the in the city where I was serving at the time. And they were very kind to us. They invited us in, and he opened the Bible, and we talked about grace for. An hour or so, and I remember leaving that meeting with him um, feeling completely different than the meeting I'd had with the Lutheran pastor. Uh, he was very kind and willing to uh, patiently try to teach us uh, the doctrines of grace, and I was thankful for that. Um, and it was, it, I left that that meeting with him. Uh, I was already in some ways questioning, and I left that meeting with him feeling like. Um, that I didn't have the truth. And it was so, um, yeah. So in, in most cases they treated us very well. Um, there were, you know, some, some Bible bashing experiences, but for those people who I, who I got to know, who, who were Christians in some way, um, they treated us very well. And, and, and even people that I met who had been baptized LDS, uh, from like the Catholic church, you know, which is, you know, the, the whore of all the earth, according to the book of Mormon, uh, you know, those there's, there's one gentleman that I can think of in particular, who was very, very kind. He was, he had been for many, many years, uh, someone who worked in, in like, uh, the rectory at his Catholic church, um, working with the priests. And, um, he was a very soft spoken, very kind, uh, old man and, uh, really appreciated the friendship that I, developed with him so
1: was the was the lutheran um you said he was a lutheran pastor yeah was he the one that showed you the book from like the dead sea scrolls i was was trying to remember from your
0: story yeah no he's not um that guy uh we never had any interaction with that guy other than just at his the front window of his house where he gave me that that packet of uh photocopied papers that was um the, the, the war scroll from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so other than getting that from him, returning it the next day and giving him a book of Mormon, we never had any further interaction with him.
1: Oh, okay. So you don't know if he was Christian or not either.
0: No. Nope.
1: Okay. Hmm.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. So, uh, I, there were a lot of Christians,
2: uh, on my mission where I went. And, uh, I think a lot of the reaction that I got was pretty negative initially. Um, yeah, I just kind of see people, watching me from their doorways with these judgmental stares and they wouldn't interact for the most part, or they'd just kind of talk to us real briefly at the door and end the conversation and, and close the door as fast as they could. So I didn't have a real positive view of Christians. In fact, I, I kind of thought that they were lazy, that they didn't really have very much conviction or care about the commandments of God that much you know they weren't certainly weren't like us latter-day saints um you know they were just on a lower level they were terrestrial you know they were good people but you know if they weren't so lazy they would join the church so um then i met uh, my friend ed ed enox and and you know he he debated us for several hours and i left same thing as paul i i didn't think the church was true anymore and and then i kind of went and and started studying and um kind of figured out how to start defending my faith and and we started preparing for these dialogues and i had a, a just a really low view of christians after that debate i took it real negatively and i started almost equating them like with satan like they're satan's minions you know they are uh what makes them dangerous is that they're so close to the truth, but it's still, you know, a false gospel. And, and they're trying to bring people like me out of the church to uh, to believe in, in Protestantism. And I remember I actually had this dream, and this should illustrate, you know, just how much I distrusted Christians. But um, I I dreamed that we were in our apartment, all of us missionaries, and then there was a knock and the the Christians came in and you know, I kind of said something like I had to go to the bathroom and they let me leave the apartment. So I like walked out and it was one of those apartments where there's like a hallway, like I was still indoors sort of when I left. And I heard screaming inside, like them yelling at each other. And so I looked through the keyhole and I saw the Christians pull out guns and shoot the other missionaries, you know, and I woke up and I'm just like, you know, like that kind of tells you, like, I'm like, you know, they might act nice, but Deep down, you know, they have this message of death and they are trying to pull us down uh, to hell with them. So, yeah, just a, a really low view of, of Christians. Even the whole dialogue, I, I kind of thought like, some of the other missionaries were like, oh yeah, we heard about, you know, Christians doing something like this and and they just cornered the missionaries and, you know, persecuted them. And, and that's what I thought was going to happen too. I'm like, they're going to, put us in a corner they're gonna i don't know throw fruit at us and and call us names and and it's just same kind of thing like people would drive by us on our bikes and they just kind of yell out their car windows like jesus is lord and we're just like amen (laughs) like we know or or they just kind of yell things out at us but not actually have conversations like Satan lied to Adam and Eve when he said they could become gods. And I'm just like, is that, is this all that Christianity has to offer? Like just yelling at you from cars and from the other side of the street, but not being willing to engage. And And I actually finally did the dialogues and it was, it was kind of funny because after that, a lot of the Christians in the, in the neighborhood recognized me. Um, in fact, my friend Eddie Knox said that I was the celebrity missionary that was what he dubbed me. And so uh, people started letting me in their houses because they, they knew me from, from the dialogues. And so I actually started to get to sit down and, and talk with Christians a lot more. And by the end of my mission, my perception completely changed. You know, I couldn't deny that Christians were good people. I mean, I actually really liked them a lot. So, you know, I trusted them. I I didn't have those fears and concerns that I had earlier on in my mission, but I still thought that they were, you know, a little lazy and <laughs> and obviously had a false a false gospel and you know, were just a little bit special that way.
1: Just uh just to clarify, do you mean when you say you thought they were lazy is that because you thought like oh, they just don't want to give up their tea and coffee? Uh, and like all their sinful stuff that Christians can do, or was it just like, oh well, they don't have as many commandments as we do, or or you know they don't do as many charitable works as we do? You know what I mean? So what, what did yeah, you mean by I, lazy?
2: I think it was it was a little bit of like the the second thing you're you're saying, like they don't have as many commandments. It's like the gospel light, basically. Um, they couldn't keep all these commandments if they had them. And I talked to some crazy. Christians on the street too, where, you know, they're, they're like, Oh, we're saved no matter what we do. And I just be like, so you believe you can kill somebody and you'll still go to heaven. Like you can just go like hijack a plane and, and kill everybody on board. And they're like, yep. I'm like, okay. So I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, the commandments mean nothing to these guys. Like it doesn't matter to them at all. They, you know, um, and so I, I viewed us as, you know, Latter-day Saints as being more holy than christians because like we actually uphold god's law and and we care about it and um and i thought that they did but just you know to an extent you know it just didn't extend anywhere near as far as us and yeah they didn't do as many charitable good works you know if there was a natural disaster we were the ones out there mormon helping hands you know helping everybody rebuild after after any disaster um but i mean it makes sense because we the Mormon church has a lot of money and you know is capable of, of doing a lot of stuff like that.
0: But uh, yeah. Does that answer your question, Matthew? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's that, there's that quote, right. From Joseph Smith. I'll have to paraphrase it. Cause I don't know that I'll get it exact, but something about like um, a religion that doesn't require everything of its people is not capable of providing salvation to them or something like that. Yeah. Um, a, a religion that does not require the sacrifice of all things. Yeah
2: yeah never had the power to grant salvation
0: or yeah that's pretty close Mm -hmm. that was from
1: smith right
0: yeah yeah Yeah, so that you know that and we we definitely in our mission you know because it was a, a largely catholic nation you know we had this this feeling of superiority um you know we would make fun you know they only show up to church on christmas and easter you know they can't can't bother themselves to come out to church every week and you know things like that we had we definitely had uh some negative views so yeah oh man i was kind of a brat as a
2: missionary by the way so i wrote this entire song about born again christians to make fun of them um so like some of the lyrics were born again saved from sin no 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 you gotta sing it you can't sing it Born again, saved from sin, never going to have to work again, hallelujah, amen. My brother's in jail, my sister's gay, but we're all saved, so that's okay, hallelujah, amen. When we read James, we get mad, because our works have all been bad, hallelujah, amen. <laughs> it just went on for like 20 minutes. I don't even remember the lyrics now, but I just, yeah, that just goes to show, like, I just thought they were ridiculous.
1: Mm. I was going to say, it reminds me of some conversations we've had recently, but I'm not going to name drop, but <laughs> <laughs> interesting. Yeah. We should make a soundtrack.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The From bad water to
1: wine, the gonna, soundtrack.
2: <laughs> Someone else is probably going to pick up that song now and yeah, <laughs> now it's going to be used against us. So yeah. thanks a lot. This is you guys' fault.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go triple platinum or, uh, what was that South Park episode? Because it was a Christian music, they couldn't go platinum. They could only go gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So, oh you, could my go, so you could go double myrrh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is it that good, though? Is it that good? Mm.
1: You just need Nicki Minaj or something to, to do backup vocals, and I think, you, I think it'd be good. Yeah,
2: and somebody else to do primary vocals. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So next, next question, how would you treat your younger self and dismantle your preconceived notions about Christians? And I think it's Matthew's turn to answer first.
1: So like I said, I didn't really interact with a lot of really uh, faithful Christians. Most of them were kind of nominal Christians or nominal Catholics. So m- most of, one of my ideas about were, of Christians were that they were kind of just naive or they were ignorant of the fullness of the gospel, that they were probably, they probably had good intentions. So, but they just didn't have the fullness of God's revelation to man. So I would kind of explain to myself because I had this notion in my mind that Christians read the Bible. They probably enjoy the Bible, but they don't really understand the Bible because I know that I read Bruce R. McConkie a lot before my mission. And one thing he would repeat in all his works is that you can't truly understand the Bible in its fullness unless you see it through the lens of the restoration so you kind of have to have that understanding of restored gospel as taught by the latter-day saint church to understand what the bible says so i thought that christians probably read their bible and they liked it but they didn't really understand it so i would kind of explain to myself when i was younger like hey you know christians really do study this stuff in depth a lot of times a lot of them study it from the original languages they go into um exegetical theology, which is just reading the Bible uh, passage by passage and really pulling out what it teaches rather than trying to force your views into the Bible. They really want to extract what the Bible teaches. And they also do a lot of expositional preaching where they would just, you know, go through passage by passage. They, they start out with the introduction to the book. they give you the context and they go, you know, verse by verse and just go through and say what the author is saying. So a, a lot of Christians do that kind of preaching and, and it's really commendable. So, So I would kind of try to give myself a higher view of Christians and less of a kind of a view of Christians as being naive or ignorant to an extent. They're very knowledgeable about, Well, many of them are very knowledgeable about their faith. That's not the case, obviously, for everybody who professes Christ. Um, But yeah, it's probably probably the biggest thing I would say. And also, I kind of probably had similar ideas that you did, uh, Michael, where kind of like the antinomian idea that you don't have to really keep God's law or that doesn't really matter. You know, that's kind of what my view was a lot of christians i thought well if you're saved by grace then what's the point of commandments so i'd kind of try to explain to my former self that the bible teaches that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone but once you're saved you're called to live a life of holiness you're called to live and die to your sins and to pick up your cross and follow jesus and so if you really are a follower of jesus you should be keeping the commandments or striving to keep the commandments so yeah those that's what i would explain
2: yeah i mean i think uh it just can't be overstated the importance of explaining to Latter-day Saints that we do believe in a process of sanctification. Um, I think a lot of them just, it goes over their head. They don't realize that that we accept that. I mean, I had one Latter-day Saint just going after me like all week, just kind of saying, oh, so you, you believe that now that you're saved, life's easy. You don't have to struggle with sin anymore. And I'm like, That's, I've never said that. Mm-hmm. It is certainly not what I believe. So I think that's a really good way to go. Um, If you're
1: you're a Christian and you're not struggling with sin, I don't know, you might have to ask yourself, am I really Christian? Because I don't think you ever stop struggling with sin. Mm -hmm. It's a struggle every day.
0: Yeah, Yeah. amen to that. So how would I treat my younger self and dismantle preconceived notions about Christians? Um, You know, we talked a little bit about how Sometimes, uh, Michael, especially for you in the U.S., it seemed like, you know, Christians would yell at you from across the street or um, not really engage, um, just kind of have short, pithy statements that they would make to you, you know, to, to try to challenge you, but not really interact. Um, I, you know, the, the Christians, on, when I was on my mission, who really made an impact were the ones who invited me in um, and showed me hospitality within their home. And um, I don't think they compromised anything by that. I have seen uh, Christians use like Second John chapter 1, uh, 7 to 10, which says, for, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So I've seen Christians use that passage as a reason to not uh, interact with LDS missionaries at all, not in, not invite them into their home. Um, and, and, and I've even seen You know in some suggest that it's it's justification for treating them poorly and i i strongly disagree with that uh that approach to to second john 1 7 to 10. there are very specific teachings within that passage that john is warning his readers to avoid and not have any uh interaction with um, I don't think those teachings that are that are listed there are teachings that that Latter Day Saints are generally generally trying to bring. And and also I would I would say you know that it, like I said the one the Christians who had the biggest impact on me as a Latter Day Saint missionary were the ones who treated me with hospitality, brought me into their home, uh, taught me from the Bible. And I know you know as as a Latter Day Saint missionary you're you're told you're not going out to. Uh, be taught you're going out to teach and and many latter-day saint that that's that's why you end up with Bible bashing situations because uh, missionaries don't want to hear necessarily what what a Christian is saying to them but I think it's important uh, for Christians to uh, find a way to interact with with latter-day saint missionaries in positive ways. I know Michael you you and I have talked about uh, sometimes when you've done that uh, since you've become a Christian um, yeah. So that's that's what I would do. I would treat them with hospitality, invite them in, open the Bible with them, and and you know challenge them to think through to think through some things, teach them grace. Yeah, I mean, uh, one
2: of the things that just jumped in my mind while you were saying all that, Paul, is I mean, I, rem- I remember being on a mission and you get moved around so much. You know, you're not around your family, uh, the friends that you do make. On your mission, I mean, you get moved, and then they're out of your lives. And so, I think that a lot of these missionaries are desperate for the 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 ability to connect to somebody. And uh, I mean, I think they want. Same thing for me when when people invited me into their house and they showed me hospitality. It was amazing. And so, those Christians had the biggest impact on me as well.
1: I was also going to mention too. Sometimes, sometimes companionship, companionship being two missionaries or sometimes three missionaries, sometimes Christians who are talking to missionaries or members who are talking to missionaries. Sometimes it seems like, you know, everything is going great with the companionship. You know, they get along the elders, everything is going great, but then behind the scenes, you know, there's, there's, they just don't. Um, I just, I mean, you guys probably experienced it too, but there are just some companionships where you got along, you know, you clicked and sometimes where Just there's just a clash in your personalities or something that just doesn't work. And the fact that you're with them 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you can't be away from your companion, except for on rare occasions like exchanges and things like that. You just kind of grate on each other's nerves and just having that experience of going to a member's house or going to an investigator or or just a non-Christian, someone that invites you in just to chat and, or, you know, give you a meal. You didn't even have to have a meal, just have a discussion. Sometimes I was just like everything. I would just look forward to that every week, just because the rest of the week was just so difficult trying to love my companion, trying to get along with my companion and not really having any, any other relationship other than that. So meeting other people and, and yeah, having, having those experiences, like you explained, Michael, were just like, they just, that just made my week. And I struggled a lot with depression in my mission and there were a lot of times where I just told myself I was wasting my time. I was wasting my money and my parents' money because missionaries have to finance themselves out there. And I was just like, just go home. You know, you're just wasting your time. It's just no point. And so, yeah, just like those tiny little um, tokens of mercy and, that uh people would that would give me you know just a meal or just ask me sincerely how are you doing you know are you struggling with something on your mission you know you know just just wanting to show care and show show affection for missionaries because they're people you know they're ultimately people sometimes we like to think of mormons as or missionaries as robots or something like that you know like oh they're just agents of the devil and we just you know we just don't want we shouldn't talk to them we shouldn't relate to them like paul explained but they're people, and they. You know they have feelings and they have struggles, and I think if you try to connect to them in some way, and um, then that can really form a connection, form a bridge with them.
2: Yeah, and I was I was just thinking too, like about like just two experiences that stand out to me where a Christian really shifted the paradigm of of what I thought about them. And one I, I probably mentioned this on on the podcast before, but we we found two two Christian women that were walking, and we tried to go preach mormonism to them and then they were just really nice to us and they're like oh you know what we we as a church we pray for you guys every sunday and of course i knew that they (laughs) they weren't praying for us to be successful in our missionary endeavors or anything but still just i was like man you i thought i thought christians hated us but i'm like you can't say that somebody who's praying for you hates you you know it's kind of hard to to say that. So that was one thing. And then another one was we, um we were teaching this, this teenager guy, he opened the door and it was this really powerful lesson we were giving him. And like, I thought he was going to convert, but then his parents showed up while we were there and his dad was a pastor. So it was kind of interesting, but his dad kind of, he was like, Hey, hold on a minute. he came out with like a bunch of groceries and, and gave them to us. And he's like, I know you guys don't always get, get fed, which wasn't true in my mission, but you know we were happy to to take the food anyway. And I just thought that that was a really um, hold on a sec cat balls going off. Gotta love that. Um, I thought that was a really nice gesture. So, um, but yeah, there's there's things that I try to do. Like if I was talking to myself as a Mormon missionary, I'd probably do the same thing that I do with the local missionaries that come over to my house. And being an ex-Mormon, we're already you know at a huge disadvantage because more members of the church look at us and we're as despicable as they come. You know, we've abandoned our covenants, uh, we've left the church, but we can't leave it alone. And so I think there's this stigma with ex-Mormons, and it's like these people are really out to get us. These guys are our enemy. And so I really, I really try to just invite the missionaries in. I do introduce myself to them and I'm upfront and honest about them about, you know, who I am and, and everything. But I usually try to, to build some connection with them and we'll share our, our crazy missionary stories for, for a while. Cause it's, it's something that we share in common, you know, like I'll tell them about the crazy lady we ran into that said the church ruined her life. And then she ran out and got in her car and tried to run us over. And, you know, we'll just try to top each other's stories for, for a while. Um, but I usually, I usually don't talk doctrine the first time that I meet them. Like I just use it to, um, to build a friendship, you know, to kind of build that bond because I know they want it and I know they want to talk about doctrine just as much as I do. So usually I'll invite them over for dinner, you know, and, and we'll talk about doctrine over dinner and I'll make them like root beer floats or something. I just try to make it, you know, fun for them when, when they come by and, and just have an environment where there's not, you know this cuz i was in so many houses on my mission where it's just like this, you know, gloom and doom like i got you kind of thing and i'm not trying to set an environment like that. Like i want them to want to come over and and discuss and i usually don't take the approach that i'm like an apologist or or i'm trying to preach at them and i take more of an approach of, you know, oh i'm i'm just like you guys, i'm on a journey to find the truth so let's take this journey together and here's my perspective and here's why I have it. You know, what would you say about, about this, you know, and we'll kind of go through the scriptures that way. And I've just found in my experience um, over the last, you know, two years, I've had the opportunity to do this with a couple of sets of missionaries and it's gone really well. Um, Their understanding of what we believe is, has grown. They, They actually understand my position and, you know, i they call me uh, brother flornoy which i take as as a compliment you know as a a term of endearment uh but i've had at least two of them uh kind of contact me afterwards and say that that they trust me you know and and they they know i disagree with them you know they know that i believe that that they're in a false gospel so it's not like i've not given them the message you know they've heard it loud and clear but i think that it can be done with with respect and, and they don't view me the way that uh, Christians usually, or that Mormons usually view ex-Latter-day Saints. So I know that it can be done. So yeah, that's what I would do with, with my younger self as well. All right, let's get into the next question here. Uh, I'm going to throw this one at Paul first. How would you answer the charge coming from yourself that Mormons are Christian too, that they believe in Jesus and, and that Heavenly Father loves all his children
0: So the first question, how would I, how would I answer the charge that Mormons are Christian too? I, I would challenge it. Um, I would, I would ask them what they mean by saying Mormons are Christians. Um, do they mean that Mormonism falls within the broad category of a Christian religion because they believe in and and follow Jesus Christ and his teachings? Um, so, is it, is it a sociological Christianity that they're claiming? Or do they mean that they have, on an individual level, uh, been born again? Because that's, that's the definition of what a Christian is, right? Someone who has been born again, uh, drawn by God, the Father, to the Son, uh, given the gift of faith, uh, justified, uh, saved individual, right? Um, is everyone who is attending... Uh, an evangelical Christian church, a Lutheran church, a Reformed church, uh, is everyone sitting in the pews in those churches a born again Christian? The answer to that question is no. And I would argue that that's true of the LDS faith as well. Um, and I don't know that they could counter that, right? Because everyone has to have that individual experience where the Father draws them to the Son. So that's how I would counter that because I think, I think a lot of times, at least it was the case for me, what I wanted was, uh, hey, I'm in the club kind of feeling with the rest of you all, right? Um, so it was more of a sociological definition of Christian that I was after. Um, I fit, you know, within this category. Um, but when you really get down to brass tacks, when you really get down to the heart of the matter, has, has the person been given the new heart to love God? And seek after him. Because without that, they're not really seeking after him. Um, in terms of the, the second part of the question, that they believe Jesus and a Heavenly Father who loves all of his children, um, I would challenge that as well. Do you believe Jesus? Right? Do you believe Jesus when he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins? That's, that's an important question to ask yourself. What does he mean by? unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Um, so yeah, I, I would just challenge them gently, take them to the scriptures. That's how I would, that's how I'd answer those. All right. Uh, Matthew, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I think, I think Paul gave a great explanation, especially for that first one. I don't really have anything to add, um, to the, the first question, answering the charge that Mormons are Christian too. Um, to clarify what, uh, if, for those who are listening who might not know what Paul was saying um, when he was quoting John 8, 24, right? When he says, if you believe that I am he, if you do not believe that I am he, then you will die in your sins. Basically, the words there in the Greek are ego, I, me, which, are, which is the same words that are used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, to refer to the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh. So Jesus was saying emphatically there, if you do not believe that I am Yahweh or Jehovah, then you'll die in your sins. And Latter-day Saints may say, well, we believe that he's Jehovah, right? Well, do do you believe everything that Jehovah says about himself in the Old Testament, where he says that he does not change, that in God, that there is no shadow of turning or changing, that he, in essence, has eternally been God, that he did not progress to Godhood, or he was never born, he was never created, he's eternally been God. So those are all attributes that are essential to believing in Yahweh, in in the God of of Scripture. And so, and when you think about it that way, the doctrines that are essential to Latter-day Saint theology, such as eternal progression, part of that is the understanding that they believe that we are all literal spirit children of God the Father and God the Mother. And so is Jesus. Jesus was also an offspring of God the Father and God the Mother. So that means that he, went un- he underwent some kind of change. Now, some Latter-day Saints will say that he was still eternally God even before birth as a spirit intelligence. Um, but I don't think you can really make that case because God says he doesn't change. And yet we see him changing from a spirit intelligence to a spirit body to you know, to going through the eternal progression uh, of the plan of salvation, the Latter-day Saint theology. So I don't think you can really say that the Latter-day Saint view of Jesus is Yahweh as we, as the Bible explains it from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 90 verse two, there is no changing in God. He's eternally been God. He's, he's not born or made or created. And there is no other God than Yahweh. So the only way we can explain that. And the fact that the Bible teaches that both the father is Yahweh and the son is Yahweh is that they're both the one eternal God. Now they're, they're the, the orthodox view of, of explaining this is that what whatever makes God God his quote-unquote, you know, his godness, you could say, that is his essence. What makes God who he is, is his essence. And that essence is shared by both the Father and the Son, and also the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is called God. So there's one essence shared coequally amongst these three divine persons. So the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father, but they share the same divine essence eternally, and they've been in a, an eternal relationship. In John 1, verse 1, um, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And in the Greek, it says that in the beginning, the Word already was. He he was was-ing, you could say. He was he already existed in the beginning. So, you can go back as far as you want. The Son existed. The Word existed. And He was prostantheon, which means He was face-to-face with God. He had a face-to-face relationship with God, God the Father. So, the Father and the Son were in an eternal relationship face-to-face with one another. So, it's not like He you know he was he was still a person he still had you know a consciousness a will there was communication there was love between the persons and not only did the word eternally be with the father he what he was god so the son is god the father is god they're face to face with one another you have to reconcile all these things together and that's why christians are forced to be trinitarians we can't we can't uh compromise on that that's a that's a line in the sand and so that's why Throughout history, when when you see someone challenging these doctrines, such as um, the Nestorians, that you know they tried to say that Jesus was two persons uh, in within Jesus, or you see. Uh, Arians that say that Jesus was a created being, um, that he wasn't always God or that he didn't always exist. These all counter with the biblical testimony of an eternal, unchanging God that has been revealed in three divine persons. And that's something we just can't compromise on. So when we say, do you love Jesus, quote unquote, I would have to ask which Jesus? Because I think the differences between what LDS believe about Jesus and what Christians believe about Jesus is different enough that we can't be talking about the same God. We can agree that, yes, our different versions of Jesus both were spoken of in the Gospels. You know, he taught the parables, etc. But they're different enough that we can't be talking about the same God. And that same same goes with Heavenly Father. There is no God before Heavenly Father. God the Father does not have a wife. So... Um, and when we say that God loves His children, Latter-day Saints, even in that phrase, they're saying that they that God loves all of His literal spirit children. And we believe that God does not give birth to us as spirit children. Uh, we we see in John chapter one that to those um, to those who believe in God, He gave them the right to become children of God. We become children of God by adoption, not by birth. So these are just fundamental differences. These are chasms that that separate biblical Christianity and Latter-day Saint theology that we just cannot cross. So we can be friends with Latter-day Saints and we can share the gospel with them and we can have good friendly relationships and we can even love them and, and, and grow in fellowship in a certain sense, but we can't call them brothers in Christ for those reasons.
2: Yeah. a Really good answer. Matthew um, really appreciated that. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about how I would counter this as well. And I think uh, the first thing that I would talk about is like, and I've, I've brought this up to some LDS friends of mine, but, you know, there's this, this guy in Russia that kind of looks like, you know, the paintings of Jesus that they have in the LDS wards. And he, you know, he claims to be Jesus and he's got a bunch of, you know, followers around him. And, and so my question is, are those people Christian? And even a Latter-day Saint will say, no, they're not Christian I mean, it says in Mark 13 that false Christs will arise. And so, if you're, if you're following a false Christ, then you're not a Christian. And so, there has to be a line drawn somewhere. You can't just say, well, because I'm, I believe in Christ and I'm using his name, that makes me a Christian. That is simply not true. And, and once you acknowledge that there is a line there, that is when I would say, let's, you know, let's dig into the scriptures. Let's dig into the differences and let's see if they're significant because I believe that they are significant enough and I'm not going to go over all the same things that you just did right now, Matthew. But one of the the big things is, you know, when I was LDS, I kind of thought if I went back in time a hundred trillion years and I saw Jesus, he might just be a pile of sparkly intelligence, you know, not really a, a spirit yet, much less a God. And And now I I believe if I go back, you know, a hundred trillion years, he is the same as he is right now. Um, I mean, you know, God is, God is still God. You know, he's not lower in his progression. Like he's not intelligence. I don't want to worship a God who I'm farther along in my progression than he was a hundred trillion years ago. I I just don't, I don't see the excitement in that. Uh, The other, uh, The other thing I would bring up is if God loves all of his children, then why does he send some of them to hell? Um, Specifically, you know, the devil and his angels are still God's children, but they are in outer darkness, according to LDS theology. And there will be some who are sons of perdition who will go to outer darkness for eternity. And I know that a lot of Latter-day Saints would say, well, um, you know, there's still the, the telestial kingdom and the terrestrial kingdom you know and and jesus is in the terrestrial kingdom and, and even the celestial kingdom is so beautiful that you know you would kill yourself to go there but the fact still remains that they are banished from the father's presence in the celestial kingdom in any of those places and so if, if god loves all of his children why doesn't he accept them you know um something and, interesting and that just came
1: sorry oh, sorry i was just so gonna last, add to that. last
2: thought here I, I was just gonna say that i would definitely bring up the point that in in christianity we believe that God saves uh, and accepts 100% of his children. Uh, but sorry, what were you saying, Matthew?
1: Amen to that, Michael. Sorry, I thought you were done. <laughs> Didn't mean to cut you off. Now, yeah, it's interesting too, because I'll talk to a lot of Latter-day Saints and we'll quote verses from the Bible. that says, well, it says you're, graced, you're saved by grace apart from your works. It's a gift of God. And they'll say, well, yeah, well, amen. You know, you need grace. We're saved by completely by grace to get to the celestial kingdom. And then to get to exaltation, you need ordinances and works, et cetera, et cetera. But like you said, if it's by grace, then why doesn't God give grace to those in the terrestrial and the celestial kingdom? Grace isn't something that you take from God. It's something that he gives. So, why doesn't he give that same grace to them that he gives to those that make it to the celestial kingdom? So, just something to think about. Yeah.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the next question here, and I'm going to ask Paul this first. How would you answer if your former self said that God still speaks to us through a prophet because He loves us today,
0: first I would agree with the premise that God loves us today, right? Um, God God's love didn't stop, um, and so I would I would agree with that premise. But I would challenge the charge that because of that, God still speaks to us through a prophet. Um, and with with a latter day saint, there's a couple of approaches you can take. One is to ask. What has God said through Latter-day Saint prophets that wasn't said through prior prophets or that is, uh, you know, additional to what we already know from the Bible? And when you ask that question, you get a variety of answers. Um, sometimes people will talk about the word of wisdom um, and how that, you know, is for people's health. And so, therefore, you know, that shows God's love for people. Um, other times, people will talk about, uh, you know, the the revelation of the true nature of God, um, and that opens the door to to ask the question: What are you talking about? You know, like Matthew was saying before, with regards to the Trinity, are you are you saying, are you claiming that you have a different understanding of the nature of God? If you are, then we really have something to talk about there, and there's there's some significant difference to to dig into, um, and the challenge. For Latter-day Saints, if they make that claim, is that the real meat of the additional teachings about the nature of God are outside of their canon. Um, there's allusions to them, like DNC 130, right, where it talks about uh God having a body, God the Father having a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. But outside of that, you have to go to Joseph Smith's King Follett Sermon or the Sermon in the Grove uh, to really dig into their difference, the differences with regards to the nature of God. Um, and so, (laughs) excuse me. Um, so that, that's one way I would challenge it. The other way is the biblical way, right? Which is to say, um, look, look at the old Testament, right? Old Testament Israel. Uh, there were three offices that were really important in old Testament Israel, prophet, priest, and King, right? and you, you had people serving within each of those offices. You know, King David, really important king in, in Israel. Um, Isaiah, really important prophet, right? Uh, you have uh, the high priests, right, who, who served in the temple, uh, making the sacrifice, served in the tabernacle, beginning with Aaron and his, his sons, right? So, these three roles uh, were really important roles in Old Testament Israel. And the New Testament applies each of those roles and their cessation to Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ in the New Testament, in Hebrews especially, is the ultimate high priest. And in Hebrews, he is the final prophet, right? Um, and he is the ultimate king. So, if you're going to claim that God speaks to us through a prophet today, then then you are denying what Hebrews says about Jesus Christ and his role as as the one through whom God has in these last days spoken to the world. So that's my thoughts on that. All right. What do you think, Matthew? What would you say to yourself
2: if you said that?
1: Yeah, I studied, so I studied um, within the Christian world, there's there's kind of a division in in terms of the charismatic gifts, and that's kind of a side topic. But it, in studying that, I really studied this topic of, continuation of you know apostles and prophets and things like that if it's necessary if it continues today and it's really hard to prove i, th- I think that passage in uh, hebrews chapter one right verses one through three i think that's what you were talking about paul i think that's a really clear teaching that all of the prophets and apostles were leading to christ but as a latter-day saint many of them will say well after christ ascended to heaven there were still apostles and prophets in the new testament church so why are those not supposed to continue And, and so it's hard to really pin down a time when you're supposed to say, okay, at this precise time, that's when prophets and apostles ended. Right. But we, we, you kind of have to look at all of scripture as a whole and you see that every time there's an outpouring of spiritual gifts, prophecies, things like that, um, miracles, it's because God is kind of putting his divine seal upon that person. So we see like, especially with Elijah and Elisha, God performed many miracles through them to prove their their prophetic calling because they were being challenged by um, worshipers of Baal and, and other people. They were they were being challenged by them as to whether they were truly a prophet. And so God worked through them. Moses also, there, were, there was a huge outpouring of miracles. And so God was basically saying, this is my prophet. I've called him to my work. And so I will show all these signs and wonders as as divine proof of his calling. And we don't really see that very often until – we get to the New Testament with Christ. Christ performed miracles, brought people back from the dead, and that's why they thought he was Elijah. Um, And then we see that also with the apostles after the the day of Pentecost, uh, they had the outpouring of the spirit upon them. They were speaking in tongues and congregations were prophesying where they didn't really do that before. And we see members in the churches speaking in tongues so we see this outpouring and it goes from in concentric circles you could say you know it started in jerusalem with the jews and then it kind of went outward to different groups and then it went out to um it went out to jews who were not at jerusalem at the time there were those who had been taught by john the baptist and baptized by him um so they were you know they were taught but they just they just weren't ready or they weren't prepared to receive Christ or, and, you know, they weren't really looking forward to it. They didn't really quite understand. So there were, and then there was different groups and then there's Samaritans and then the, you know, the non you know, the Gentiles basically ultimately. So we see God working from his covenant, starting with his covenant people out to the Gentiles. And so, and when you see that God is showing that this is his work, he's building his church, he's laying the foundation and Christians agree wholeheartedly with the passage in Ephesians that says that that uh, were built upon the, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ being the chief cornerstone. We believe in that. And so when you're building a house, how many times do you make a foundation? Ideally, you should only make a foundation once. If it's strong enough, if it's sure enough, if it's stable enough, it doesn't matter if the rest of the house crumbles. If the foundation is sure enough, that foundation will stand. So the foundation was built on the teachings and the doctrines of the apostles and prophets and and Christ being the chief cornerstone. And we... Uh, Peter speaks of Christians as being spiritual stones being built into a spiritual house of God. So we are built upon that foundation. So really apostles and prophets were needed in that first century because it was a new church. You know, Christ was building his church. He was, it was, they didn't have the full biblical revelation. It took, you know, it it took at least two or 300 years for them to really start to compile all of the new Testament revelation together. People had, some people had certain letters. Some people had, certain gospels but not all of them so for the entire church to get all of the new testament it took time and in the first century they needed that outpouring of prophecies and tongues and revelations Um, but we don't need that today what we have is sufficient we know who we can learn from the biblical canon now we can learn who is god who is christ and how can we know how can we come to know God in Christ and how can we have a right relationship with them how can we be saved and have eternal life so everything that we need to know is in scripture now so we don't constantly need new information prophets giving us new revelation day by day by day just because what we have is sufficient for our salvation and, and to know God and 2 Timothy 3:16 through 17 says that it's sufficient to for exhortation, for preaching, for doctrine, and for leading the man of God to all good works and to make them complete and perfected. So it's it, it's a very powerful passage that speaks of the sufficiency of Scripture. And yes, technically, that's speaking of the Old Testament at the time because they didn't really have a finished New Testament canon, but I think it's speaking broadly of all Scripture as being God-breathed and as sufficient for, for training us in righteousness. So basically, the function of apostles and prophets was finished. After the first century church had been built up and Christ had ascended, completed his work, and the doctrines had been taught, Christian church grew, and the biblical canon was completed. So that's why it's really hard to, when I start off by saying, it's really hard to point to a scripture and say, at this specific point, we don't need apostles and prophets anymore. I think that's what Hebrews 1 is talking about, but it doesn't give a date or a time or, you know, or uh, any specifics like that that a Latter-day Saint might ask. So it's a little bit more involved to kind of explain all this from scripture why we don't have apostles or in the prophets today and why we don't really need them.
0: Can I throw a curveball in here? Sure. So, biblically speaking, the role of a prophet there's kind of two two things that they they do, right? They they can prophesy, they can foretell the future uh by by revelation from God, uh or they can uh foretell, right? There's foretelling and forthtelling. Uh I've seen Latter-day saints recently kind of pick up those two roles and apply it to apply them to the, the very obvious situation that, um, the role of a prophet within the Latter-day Saint tradition is very different for those who came after Joseph Smith than it is for him. And so they, they, they will argue that Smith was a Smith was fulfilling kind of both roles as a foreteller and a fourth teller. Um, And those who have come since him, since Smith have just been forth tellers. And therefore, um, you know, one, you still need prophets, and, and, and two, it explains why there's such a difference between the output of Smith and, and those who followed him. Um, if, if you were challenged in that way by a Latter-day Saint missionary, what would you say? And Michael open to you as well.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, actually that, that actually came to my mind when we were talking, when, uh, Right. As I was finishing, I was like, I could go into that, but I, but I didn't. So I'm really glad you brought that up, but yeah. So in the sense of having the gift of prophecy as in the new Testament is receiving direct revelation from God and speaking the infallible words of God. We don't believe that that gift behaves in that, or the spirit doesn't work that gift in us today. So when a preacher goes up to the pulpit and preaches a sermon, he's not, He's not receiving direct communication from God through the Holy Spirit and speaking those, the words in that fashion. But he does have – you can say that the gift of prophecy does function in the sense that God, the Holy Spirit, aids them in foretelling, in preaching the word of God faithfully. And um, my pastors have said in, in their sermons before, they've said in the sense that when a pastor preaches the word of God faithfully and teaches the content of the word of God faithfully, meaning the Bible – then that is the word of God. So you can take it as authoritative as if it were from God as in as much as it is faithfully preaching the word of God. So in that sense, you can say that quote unquote Christians have prophets today, but it's not, but they don't perform all the same functions as prophets did in biblical times. As you explain.
2: Yeah. I'm kind of thinking about that too. And and I think it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword as a, as a lot of things that Latter-day Saints say are so, The minute that they say that the prophets today are are different they're saying two things one that god changed um that they're they're not the same thing that we had in the new testament and so it loses a lot of its appeal right there um but yeah then um and then you've got you know kind of a dilution of of what they're claiming to have which is ongoing ongoing revelation because you don't really have that ongoing revelation. It's just there in theory, but it's not there in reality. And so it just kind of starts to kind of take them down to to our level where it's like, you know, it's like the opposite of what Matthew was saying, where we can say we have prophets, but we can also say that they don't really have prophets. So it definitely evens out the ground there, and it, it takes away, uh, I guess, what makes them special. It's not really there.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was the selling point, at least for us, right when I was on my mission. Hey, we have a man like Moses who receives direct revelation from God. He's, he knows and talks to God personally. So if you take that away, yeah, he's basically just, I mean, I mean, so I've never really encountered that argument, Paul. So maybe you could explain a little bit better. But it seems like what they're saying is that they can still receive revelation, but it's not like they're giving new doctrine. They're kind of just receiving revelation to help them teach already revealed doctrine, I guess.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's kind. Of, it's kind of a way that they've been that I've seen them try to get around uh, Christians challenging them. You know why? Why did Smith translate scripture? Where is the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon? The the, the, the plates uh, that were you know that Smith foretold would come come forth. Um, why don't you have new sections of the Doctrine and Covenants added every few few months, like you did in the early years uh, of the Restoration? So those that those types of challenges uh, have kind of led some LDS apologists that I've seen online try to try to use the the difference between foretelling and forthtelling as a you know as a as a way to explain the difference between a, a seer and a and a prophet, so to speak, in in their terms. Well, I guess the the next
2: thing I would kind of say after that is, I mean, the ninth article of faith says that we believe God will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And if prophets are just there to foretell now, how is that supposed to happen? How is more going to be revealed? But I, um, I'm going off, off the path here, uh, just to kind of answer the the question that, that you guys answered. Um, I was kind of, kind of thinking about it too. And, uh, you know, using the the idea that God speaks to us through a prophet today and, and attaching that to the idea that he loves us is just really dangerous because if, if that is proof that God loves us, then it kind of works the other way too. Where for a thousand years of apostasy, doesn't that mean that God didn't love them because there was no prophet on the earth, according to LDS theology? Um, so that's probably the first thing that I would bring up, but what I would really want to hammer in is that in my belief, God preserved His Word for us because He loves us. And because the Word is preserved and because the Scripture has the power to speak to us today, we do not need prophets to give us new revelation because we believe that, like you guys have said, that Scripture is sufficient. And the second that you add prophets to the mix you are saying that the scripture is not sufficient it is just a uh, byproduct of that and so it's reasonable i mean it makes sense that the lds church you know it says in the book of mormon that plain and precious truths were removed from the bible and so therefore it you know it legitimizes the need for for prophets today uh, but if if there wasn't that belief that the bible had been corrupted then you don't really need a prophet or somebody to speak for God, because the Bible does that for you. So that is that is definitely the way that I would go with that um, with that argument today. All right, uh, question seven. I think uh, who's who's who am I supposed to ask first this time? Uh, Paul, how would you deal with the claim of an apostasy and then later a restoration?
0: So one of the most interesting experiences that i had on my mission and i think i think i've recounted this to you both before but i was um standing in a train station uh, it was actually so it was a there was a train station in the center of budapest uh where uh several metro stations also came through there um so it was a really good place to go and street contact people because uh, there were always people rushing through to either go to the trains or to the subway or get get up on the surface and go to buses um, on their way to and from work uh, or various places that they were going. So we would go there often when I was in my first area. And towards the end of my time there, I really had learned to to kind of understand what people spoke back to me when I would ask them questions And I was talking to this guy and I was sharing with him uh, passages from uh, the Joseph Smith pamphlet, which which was basically the tract that we used that was uh, the Hungarian translation of uh, the 1838 uh, Joseph Smith history. Um, And I was having him read about, you know, what Smith says about his experience as a young uh, teenage seeker wanting to know which of all the churches. Uh, Was true. He had uh, his father was uh, was was his father a Methodist or was his father the Presbyterian? I can't remember which. Um, I think his I think maybe his mom and his sister were were like liked the Presbyterian faith, and maybe his father was a a Methodist. And uh, I know his father was more of a Universalist. But anyway, I was having him read read these passages right about going into the the grove of trees to pray and to know which of all the churches. Were true, and I, you know, asked, of course, that golden question that you're you're taught to ask as as an LDS missionary. You know, um, do you do you ever find yourself confused by all of the competing claims of the various churches? And of course, you know, it's 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 a question aimed at getting someone who's a seeker to to answer yes. So the the guy I was talking to said, yeah, it doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense that there's all these churches, if there's just one God, why would there be so many churches? Um, And so then I had him read some other passages, you know, about uh, Joseph Smith's claim that he was upon praying to know the truth, he was visited by the father and the son um, and told that he should join none of the churches, um, that all of them were false and that the true church would be restored, right? And so then I asked the guy, what, what do you think about that? Isn't that great that, that God loves his children enough that he restored the true church to the earth? And his response really kind of took me by surprise because he said, wait, so your, your answer to all the confusion, God's answer to all the confusion and that all the many churches is to start another church. And I had never really considered it in that way before. Um, it was just one of those things that was kind of like a lightning bolt for me. And, you know, he, he just kind of laughed and walked away. He was done talking to me at that point. Um, But for the next hour or so, while I was still trying to street contact people, I was running that over in my mind. Like, yeah, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, does it? If, if there is one true God who loves the world, gave his only begotten son, why would he ever, if that's the solution, why would he ever let that fall into apostasy? And to the point that it would need a restoration. Um, so yeah, that that's one way I would challenge it. Was just if I was talking to a younger version of me, is just to be to share just to share that that story from my mission because it's it's a like I said, it was like a lightning bolt went off in my head. So, oh man, all right, Matthew, what what would you say?
1: Well, you, you encounter these arguments quite frequently when talking with Latter Day Saints. A lot of times, you'll see in the discussion groups they'll post something crazy that somebody did, you know, like you'll see some of these groups that uh, they intentionally drink poison or are bitten by snakes to try to prove the longer ending of Mark, which is in dispute whether it's actually (laughs) original or not. But um, the, the part of that longer ending of Mark that says, you know, if you drink poison, you know, you won't, you you'll still be healthy. You know, it's a sign that you're a Christian. And so they say, look at this craziness. Isn't this proof of the apostasy? Um, And so, or they'll point to some weird doctrine or some weird practice that a church, that a particular Christian church practices, that they think is proof of the apostasy. But you really have to think about it. Okay, did Christ ever promise that all of the church, all of the believing church, would be a hundred percent doctrinally pure? And going through the New Testament, I don't think he ever does that. What he promises, Matt, what he promises, uh, Peter in Matthew sixteen, he says, you know, Matt or sorry, getting names mixed up. It doesn't help that we've got uh, Paul and Matthew, you know, all these apostolic names and stuff. It gets me all confused. So, you know, Peter says, you know, Christ says, who do you say that the son of man, I, the son of man am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, um, for it is not uh man that's has given you this knowledge, but it's given, but it was from God. And he says that upon this rock, I will build my church. And so there's a lot of debate as to what this rock is, whether it's talking about Peter or this confession of faith in Christ. And I'm fine with either, to be honest, because we do see Peter being the chief apostle in the early church. And so it doesn't mean he's Pope or anything like that, but we do see that, that it does say in scripture that they're, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So they're built on their teachings on, on their legacy, on what they've, the the church that they built up. So I don't see any problem with either interpretation. That's kind of a side note, but, um, we have this idea where Jesus says upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So what is promised here that Hades that the church will not fail. It will not fall. But he never promises, okay, there will never be any false doctrines taught in my churches. <laughs> so what do we see throughout the New Testament? We see all kinds of problems in the early church doctrinally. In Corinth, it's just a mess. There's a man who's staying with his father's wife. We see people committing adulteries. we see people being tempted by false gospels even the judaizers in in galatia they're they're being tempted by this gospel where you you can't become a christian if you're a gentile unless you've been circumcised and you follow all the feasts you know the 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 judy the you know the jewish laws and, and ceremonies and everything so they're constantly being tempted by these false doctrines and and uh there's also a lot of scholarship that shows that Paul's epistle to the Colossians was specifically to counter the earliest gnostics who were trying to say that Jesus did not actually come in the flesh but he he came as a spirit but not as in flesh form because the early Gnostics saw anything related to the material world and the body as being evil. And so they were trying to say Jesus looked like a man, but he wasn't truly a man. He just, he was a spiritual divine being who looked like who just happened to look like a man. And so Paul uh, spends a lot of time explaining that not only did Jesus have a body and he's resurrected, but also that he is the creator of the earth because another Gnostic teaching was that uh, God is the most pure and righteous being is so separated from us. We can't really know him. And there are intermediate uh, aeons. They're called kind of spiritual beings between that one God and us. And at the lowest of that, of that, of that uh, spectrum of aeons is the Demiurge, which created the earth, which is basically the devil. So they're kind of trying to say that the devil created the earth and Paul's teaching, no Christ is God and Christ created the earth. So we see even in the early church, people were, starting to believe crazy stuff, right? So, but Paul and the others who write to these people still call them saints. So they're still kind of tempted by these weird, strange doctrines, but they're still holy. They're still part of the church. And so if you can point to someone and say, oh, look at that crazy thing they believe. They can't possibly be Christian. That's just proof of the apostasy. Well, I mean, Paul, Peter, and John, they didn't think that they were in a a great apostasy back then, and they believed in some pretty crazy stuff. So... I don't think that you can really say that because Christians throughout time and the centuries have differed on different doctrines and even sometimes have gone into great error, that that means that there's an apostasy. Christ promised his church would always be here and that it would remain. The gates of Hades would not prevail against him. And that's true. We still have the preserved word of God in the scripture. And we still have that gospel there that anybody who reads it can understand it and know how to be saved, know how to come to Christ. So, sorry, I have realized that throughout this entire discussion that my responses have been like 5 or 10 minutes long.
2: It's okay. I mean, you uh you make up for me. We balance
0: each other out. You're good. So can I can I add to something Matthew was talking about? Yeah. Yeah, so Matthew, you brought up uh Matthew uh what is 16:18? Uh yeah. Matthew 16:18 and the the gates of Hades, right? The gates of hell. Um I had some really something really interesting that I learned uh, from um Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, in his book, The Unseen Realm about that passage. <clears throat> I've read, you know, lots of commentaries on that passage because it's, it's definitely, you know, one as as, as you were noting, that's, that's used to, to make the claim that, that the church wouldn't fall away. Right. And, um, but the, the point that Dr. Heiser makes about it, I think strengthens that point even further. Um, he says, uh, Uh, on page 281 of of his book the unseen realm he says the spiritual skirmishes against the powers of darkness are evident throughout jesus's ministry one of the more dramatic is described in matthew 16 13 to 20. jesus goes with his disciples to the district of caesarea philippi on the way he asks the famous question who do people say that i am peter answers you are the christ the son of the living god jesus commends peter blessed are you simon barjona for the flesh for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit, um, but he talks about uh, the fact that the location of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi should be familiar from our earlier discussions about the wars against the giant clans. Caesarea Philippi is adjacent to the Farpar river nothing noting this geography we can see exactly where jesus was when he uttered the famous words about this rock and the gates of hell to peter caesarea philippi was located in the northern part of the old testament region of bashan the place of the serpent at the foot of mount Hermon. and um to finally like finish up on what he's talking about with the gates of hell is really interesting he says the theological messaging couldn't be more dramatic jesus says he will build his church And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We often think of this phrase as though God's people are in a posture of having to bravely fend off Satan and his demons. This simply isn't correct. Gates are defensive structures, not offensive weapons. The kingdom of God is the aggressor. Jesus begins at ground zero in the cosmic geography of both testaments to announce the great reversal. It is the gates of hell that are under assault and they will not hold up against the church. Hell will one day be Satan's tomb. So I think... The way that Dr. Heiser puts that in noting that, you know, gates are defensive structures and it's the church that is on the offensive uh, against the gates of hell and that they won't hold up against the the the, the offensive uh, acts of the church makes that that claim that uh, the church would not fall away even stronger.
1: Yeah, that's great. I hadn't really thought about that before.
2: Yeah, I, I hadn't either. That's, uh, that's the amazing perspective. Um, so I, I don't have a whole lot to add to this question because I feel like you guys covered it. Really well. Um, I know that I probably wouldn't talk a whole lot about the the restoration itself. I'd probably focus more on the apostasy because if the apostasy didn't happen, then there was no restoration. So I mean, I'd probably focus real real heavy on on that. Um, but one of the things that I think, I mean, this is something I struggled with even after becoming a Christian for a long time because I'd see Mormon apologists you know, get online and they'd say, well, you don't have a uh, you know, a leg to stand on because, you know, either Catholicism has the priesthood and they have an unbroken line or else it broke. And now we have the priesthood, but, you know, you just came out of Catholicism. You don't, you know, you don't have any authority. You don't have any uh, possibility to stand. And I think it was you, Matthew, that was kind of brought the idea to my head that, you know, the the Catholic Church hadn't fully apostatized when the Reformation happened, that it wasn't until the Council of Trent, was it, that they said that sola fide was anathema. So that was that was definitely something, you know, kind of been able to look into, and it's a whole different perspective. And I mean, I brought that up to some Latter-day Saints, and they were shocked. They'd never heard anything like that before, but it it definitely dismantles the idea. It's a very aggressive uh, kind of stance against the idea of an apostasy because when I was Mormon, I kind of believed that the apostasy probably happened, you know, before 100 A.D. like it was really early on that this apostasy occurred. And if there was no apostasy and we're not even claiming that there was an apostasy, I, th- I think they look at Protestants and, and they say, look, that's proof that there was an apostasy because they recognize that the Catholic church was in error that it wasn't the true church. And, and then they tried to leave and, and fix it, but, you know, you couldn't, they couldn't fix it um, without the priesthood keys. And so that's why God um, restored them through Joseph Smith. So to to hear us saying that the Catholic church hadn't apostatized is, is really something that I think they'd be unprepared for. Um, The only other thing I might mention is just, you know, president Nelson, Um, saying recently that, you know, the church isn't, the restoration isn't complete. Um, and just what that, what that implies, you know, if the restoration is not complete, if the church is still restoring, then that means that the apostasy isn't over. You know, if Mormonism is true, then the apostasy is not completely done. We're still in the great apostasy. Um, so yeah, I I think that's, that's all my thoughts on, on that
1: michael also has a interesting article about the restoration that you published recently so we could uh, put that in the description and link them to that if they want to read about it yeah
2: yeah the restoring gospel mm-hmm. i think that's what i call it i don't know i'm losing my memory because i'm getting old i'm catching up to paul
1: <laughs> wait how are you catching up
0: <laughs> I don't think that's how it works Michael is, is,
1: is Paul just eternal he, he's, he's frozen in time
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's
2: cause he died you know we're, <laughs> we're just you know p- copying clips from him <laughs>
1: <laughs> we just got a Rolodex of reactions and phrases from him we just push yeah. buttons yeah yeah.
2: he really just said like the same 100 words so we just kind of rearrange them and stuff
0: but uh no, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Hopefully, people realize that um, that would probably be as interesting as the things I say. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, uh, so
2: Ma- Matthew, I ask you this first: um, How do you think COVID nineteen would have changed the conversation? I mean, we see a lot of a lot more Latter-day Saints in the debate groups these days because they're not able to go out and talk to people face to face. So. Personally, would you find it easier or harder to engage with yourself online?
1: So, yeah, this is what I'm a little bit confused about. Maybe you can clarify it a bit. Do you mean like if I had an opportunity to talk to myself, you know, if, you know, my younger missionary self, or do you mean like, or do you, is that kind of what you mean?
2: Yeah. If if your younger missionary self was talking to you on a debate group
1: rather than
2: in your house.
1: And and I was serving my mission during the COVID-19. Yes. Yeah, well, I think uh, I feel kind of really bad for all these missionaries that are in these discussion groups because that's it seems like that's kind of what most of their, mi- their mission is now. They're just kind of online and they're trying to find people to talk to. And you'll see them make posts to say, hey, you know, does anybody want to do a Bible study with me? And they try to get people interested that way. So I feel kind of bad for them just because one of the hardest parts of my mission was in the office because I was doing a lot of paperwork. I was working on the legality paperwork for all the missionaries. So I would make sure that they get all their signatures, do all their paperwork. They need to stay legal and have their visas and everything. And I was also the mission secretary. So I was doing schedules for the mission president and it was really hard. It was like an office job. It was literally like a nine to five or a nine to six or something. And I just didn't like it. You know, as a missionary, you wanted to be out and talking to people and meeting people and things like that. So I feel really bad for these missionaries because, you know, sitting in front of a computer all day is probably not what they signed up for when they put in their mission papers. So I I wouldn't say it would make it easier or harder. I just would probably try it slightly differently than if I were to talk to myself in person, you know, I would probably try to show more empathy and say, Hey, you know, like I know that this is probably difficult for you being stuck inside all day and not being able to go out and talk to people. So I try to be more empathetic, you know, in that sense. Um, And I would also try to, I would try to do it. I would try to talk maybe over video like we're doing now, just because it's so easy to take things the wrong way. I think sometimes saying something boldly can come off as being sarcastic or being offensive or aggressive, but sometimes, sometimes I just want to say, okay, well, we disagree on this and that's where we have a dividing line. And so they, you know, sometimes I'm, when I'm talking to a lot of saint, they'll get offended and say, well, you're saying I'm, you know, I'm not a good person or I'm evil or, you know, like you just hate me or something. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying we differ, we differ on this. We need to talk about it. And there's so much communication that, that's verbal and, and physical, you know, that you don't get just through text. So if I were to talk to myself through text only, I would have to be sure to make sure I'm, you know, that I'm respectful and, um, you know, just trying to talk things out logically rather than try to start a fight. So yeah, I probably would talk to myself slightly differently online through text only rather than in person, for sure.
0: All right, Paul, what's your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I talked earlier about showing um, hospitality. That's, that's tough to do online. I think Matthew made a good point about maybe doing video. Um, and, and Michael, you and I, you know, we were admins in a, in a Facebook Discussion group for Latter Day Saints and, and evangelicals, and we've had this conversation right with the admin team. Should we allow the the missionaries into the group? And the the LDS admins feel pretty strongly that we shouldn't. That it's not um, it's not conducive to what the what their purpose is, and also that that probably they're not prepared to be in a debate group. Um, and I think that's probably true. Uh, but at the same time, I, I remember when I first started uh, studying at uh, Cincinnati Christian University, um, I was really curious about, you know, because that's um, a that goes back to the American Restoration Movement and Alexander Campbell, one of the earliest critics of the Book of Mormon. And of course, they have periodicals uh, that go back to, uh, you know, the early years of of latter-day saint restoration and i was really curious okay what what kind of references are there to latter-day saints uh in the in those early periodicals so i spent one evening in the library looking up every reference i could find to mormons in those early uh american restoration movement periodicals and i found a really interesting um article that was about uh a missionary an lds missionary uh, coming into a town and uh, challenging uh, the local pastors to a debate, and you know they got ga- they all gathered together in uh, one of the one of the town's churches, and and the LDS missionary you know held court against the rest of the the, the other pa- Christian pastors that were there, and it was you know reading about that was kind of interesting because it made me think, wow, you know that. That's a different way of doing missionary work than I was ever taught to do, you know, to go in and just challenge, um, challenge pastors and, and, and hold a debate. Um, so in some sense, I think, you know, if, if, if the missionaries today are unprepared for debate, they really shouldn't be out. And I, I I do recognize that they're going out younger than even we went out, right. Um, because the, the, the minimum age has changed, um, but if the LDS Church is going to send them out, and especially, especially in in the COVID era where they have to be online, they really should be prepared for it. Um, that's not to say that I think that <laughs> that all debate groups are healthy places for them because um, they're probably not. But uh, you know, the one where the one where we admin, we try to keep a respectful tone and and try to admin pretty with a pretty heavy hand, in, in cases where anybody's getting getting out of line. So, um, I think they should be, uh, if, if it's the only opportunity that they have to try to get their message across, uh, they should be, uh, challenged in that message. Um, in terms of what I find it easier or harder to engage with myself online, uh, I find it harder, uh, because you, as Matthew noted, you lack all of the social cues, um, that, that you have in person that lets a person know that you're not, uh not being sarcastic. You're not being a jerk. You know, that, the, the, the things that you lose with just straight text conversation online. Um, so yeah, I, I have engaged some missionaries online and, and I find it to be a little bit harder than in-person conversation. So, yeah, I mean, I,
2: I totally agree. I, I find it very difficult to talk to missionaries online. And like you were saying a little, a little bit ago, Matthew, um, I feel really really bad for them too because you know you grow up your whole life and you have this picture of what a mission is is going to be and it's this exciting adventure and to just have to sit there on a computer it it just must be a letdown a really big letdown so um yeah I do uh I do feel a lot of sympathy for for the missionaries you know having to go through that Um, But yeah, like Paul, like you were saying, Matthew, it'd be really hard for me to uh, talk to myself online, um, especially in in the debate groups. You know, what ends up happening, I mean, yeah, you lose a lot of those social cues when you're talking online. But the other thing that happens, too, is you have a a much harder time having a one-on-one conversation because, you know, maybe it starts off as a one-on-one, but then other people start jumping in, inserting their Arguments and then pretty soon you've just got you know a mountain of people from both sides going at it and then that missionary you were talking to may just say no one's going to even notice if I walk away uh, from this conversation now so if I were going to talk to a missionary one on one or to myself my younger self I would definitely want to do it in a video so that we're not being interrupted by by other people and we can just have that that heart to heart conversation. I just don't think it's, uh, I think that uh, internet, you know, forum debating, it really does lose a lot of that, uh, that potential that you you have when you're talking to somebody one-on-one. I mean, it's great because you can, you know, research your articles and and pull them up and things, but I mean, I can still say, Hey, I'm going to send you some things to read after this discussion. And I'd like your opinion on it next time we meet. I don't think you need that instantaneous you know, posting things because it just kind of distracts in the middle of a conversation. So that's what I think about it.
0: What about taking the
2: conversation
0: into like private message?
2: I, th- I think that's that's better. Um, yeah, I don't really have a problem with taking the conversation into a, a private message. As long as, you know, you have the time to do it. I think that's where I, one of the reasons I prefer just having a, a real time one-on-one conversation because a lot of times I'm a really busy person So it's easier for me to set aside the time and say, I'm good for this hour on this day, as opposed to we have this ongoing conversation and it's going to last for like five minutes every day. And then I lose where I was going with something and um, you just can compact a lot more, a lot more power, you know, into a, a short even a short discussion that you're having one-on-one, you know, for like 30 minutes with somebody mm-hmm. I think is more powerful than an ongoing messenger discussion with, with a missionary. But that's just my opinion.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I've, it's fascinating. It's uh, something other than interesting, but <laughs> I've seen, uh, I've seen Christians, you know, kind of argue, Oh, don't. Cause the, cause sometimes the missionaries will invite people to get to take something up in a private conversation. Um, And I've seen some Christians in the debate groups say, oh, don't do that. That's how they get you, you know? And it's like, well, are you afraid to talk to anybody who might be your friend about the gospel? Like (laughs) what do you mean that's how they get you? And I don't understand that.
2: Yeah. I think there's probably just a, the hope that if we keep it in the, in the discussion forum, that if I do get cornered, I've got the safety net of having my other brother's, Mm. In here with me, and I think that maybe a compromise to that is to say, "Hey, you know I man, I'm assuming that these missionaries online still have companions, but I don't know how that works now, but hey, you know why don't why don't I bring my friend in? we'll have a two on two conversation I mean, I think that's still way better than you know a one hundred on one hundred conversation mm. it's just not going to go anywhere yeah, so all right, um I'll go ahead and move on to the next question here. Um, how would you deal with your younger self giving you the Moroni challenge, saying that you could pray over the Book of Mormon and receive an answer that it is true? And I'll
0: start with Paul on this one. Uh, I would say that I've done it. I've I've done that challenge. Um, I think what should be considered um, by missionaries is that Latter-day Saints are taught, especially if you're born and raised in the Church. You're taught from the time you're in the cradle and you start primary uh, that God speaks in certain ways. And there are ways that are described in, in uniquely Latter-day Saint terms uh, in terms of the burning in the bosom. Now, that's not, that's not uniquely Latter-day Saint, right? Luke 24. Um, but the way that it's used within the Doctrine and Covenants in reference to uh, the Book of Mormon and, and translating the book, Oliver Cowdery translating the Book of Mormon specifically you know, that there's, there's these certain ways that you're taught you will receive the answer from the time that you're young, right? So, when I was getting ready to leave on my mission and had been born and raised in the LDS church, had graduated seminary, um, and realized, you know, hey, if I'm going to go out and teach this religion that is mine by birth, I should probably have my own witness that it's true, of course, I got down on my knees and I prayed about the Book of Mormon. Um, but what should be noted there is that it's a very emotionally fraught situation that I was in. And I suspect that a lot of Latter-day Saints, when they when they actually get down to praying about the Book of Mormon, they're in similar situations, right? They're wanting to know truth. They're wanting to know if, if what they have been taught is true. They're wanting to know if... Uh, especially if they're going out on a mission, they're wanting to know, like I was. So it's it's a very emotionally fraught situation, and um, and I do think that uh, psychologically you can manifest a, an experience, um, and people in other religions do that as well. Um, it doesn't. It's not a. It's not an indicator of truth. And if it was, then then from my perspective, I would not have continued to. Doubt that experience. And I doubted it for that very reason that I realized that I experienced exactly what I'd been told over and over and over and over again that I would experience. And I wanted something more than that. Now, I know Latter day Saints would say, oh, you know, you're questioning your spiritual experience. But I think it's wise to question a spiritual experience that is exactly what you were told over and over and over again you would experience when you did a certain thing, Uh, especially in a situation where I was staring down a mission leaving in two months and, and really, you know, feeling emotionally like, man, I'm going out to teach the world, this thing. So I need to know myself. Um, and so if it, if it was, if it really was a spiritual experience from God, uh, I, I don't think I would have continued to doubt it throughout my mission and, and would have continued to pray for uh, a witness that, that didn't come. Yeah. Um,
2: that, that's really interesting. Uh, fascinating. I mean, to, uh, <laughs> talk about it as kind of an emotional response that you can generate. Maybe that explains why it never worked when I did it, you know, cause I don't have any feelings. So I can't,
0: uh, <laughs> did you just admit to being a psychopath?
2: <laughs> so Matthew, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this question?
1: Man, we might, uh, have to do some investigation in California. There might be a, a slew of unsolved murders there <laughs> that we don't, <laughs> that we can provide some evidence for. Um, Do we lose Michael?
0: Oh, you, uh,
2: so I had to go cover up some evidence. I'm good now. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I think Paul had a lot of really great points there and, uh, yeah. So to, to kind of go off of what he was saying uh, that this can be kind of a manufactured or a forced experience, yeah, I was I was praying for months for a confirmation of the Book of Mormon and I did feel that I had kind of the burning in the bosom experience, but I don't I think it was you Paul in your story where you talk about how if you kind of focus on, you know, having that feeling, you can kind of feel that burning or that that tingling feeling and you can kind of reproduce it on command even if you're not really praying or anything. Um there were a lot of times where I had similar doubts. It was after my mission though, where you know you'd be watching a disney movie or a very emotional movie where the music is very enthralling you know it's it's you know the pitch gets high you know it starts really tugging at your heartstrings and you and you start to feel that same tingling and that same burning that i had when i was reading the book of mormon and praying about it and so sometimes i'd wonder i'd be like well how do i differentiate those feelings from the feelings of the spirit because i know that the spirit is not telling me that uh, frozen is a true recounting of actual events. Right. So um, that kind of always stuck out in my mind. So I'd ask myself, okay, well, if, if, if you can have the same exact feelings in other circumstances where you're not praying or not having a spiritual experience where you're just listening to music or, or, you know, watching a movie or, you know, just looking at nature and things like that, it, you know, is God telling you that every, all of those experiences are quote unquote true, you know? So and then I would also go through scripture, um, you know, the the heart, the passages where it says the heart is deceitfully wicked, you know, who can know it. We know that the, the fallen man's heart or just men's hearts in general are corrupted and that we're easily turned back and forth by our emotions. And God has given us the great blessing of having a mind, having an intellect. And so I'm not saying that, I think sometimes maybe in the Western church, we go a little bit too far away from feelings and say, you know, they're. You should just completely discount them whatsoever and think about only logical, rational arguments for the faith, because I think that you can have a spiritual experiment experience that confirms your faith, but, but that should not be the primary compass for what is truth. Truth is consistent, truth is rational, and we should not believe in anything that is irrational. That's something that Dr. Sproul said. He said, um, you know, I would certainly never ask anybody to believe in something that's irrational or illogical, meaning it breaks the laws of logic. You know, like if we were to try to go out there and say that Jesus is not God and he is God simultaneously, well, that's a, that breaks the law of non-contradiction. That's a contradiction. You can't say Jesus is God and not God. He's either one or the other. So faith has to be, you know, faith has to be based upon rational principles. And sometimes we don't understand everything, but I would just say to myself, do you really understand what the Bible teaches or do you only think you understand what the Bible teaches? And have you compared what the LDS church teaches as compared to the Bible? Um, because if you're, if you're going to say that your religion is the restored gospel and that it's the same gospel taught in the Bible, well, if you've never really studied the Bible in depth or really studied out the arguments from Christians and how can you really know that for sure? How do you know that the same gospel you're teaching is the gospel of what the Bible teaches? So really study it, understand it and understand the arguments that Christians are making and evaluate that against the book of Mormon and doctrine and covenants and what the LDS church teaches.
2: Good stuff, good stuff. I was uh I just kind of had this epiphany, you know, that I'm not the only one that needs to go to an asylum because for the last like hour we've all been talking about talking to ourselves. So, yeah. I'm not the only one who's crazy here. <laughs> nice try. Nice try. <laughs> 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 All right, so uh, what, what I would respond with to the Moroni Challenge is probably some of my own experiences that led me out of the church because it wasn't just logical things. Um, I had a family member that tried to tell me that I intellectualized my way out of the church, and I said, you know, it was just as much spiritual as it was doctrinal for me, and that's because I, I had a couple of dreams where I felt like God was telling me to leave the church so I would probably talk about those things, and that is, you know, that is a stalemate at that point, because you know, you can't have God telling them that the church is true and then telling me that it's not true and I need to leave it. And so at that point, you know, you've you've reached an impasse, you can't reach an answer by by a spiritual confirmation. But what I would kind of go to next is that ultimately those spiritual experiences by themselves cannot be trusted. And if you look at Mark thirteen twenty two, it says, "For false Christ and false prophets shall rise, and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect." And I can point out a couple of instances where this has occurred. Uh, you look at the story of Moses in the Exodus. You know the Pharaoh's magicians were able to do a lot of the same miracles initially that Moses was able to do. They threw down their staffs and they became snakes. They were able to turn water into blood. And so it would have been really easy to look at those guys and say, oh, you know, they've they've got God on their side. Um, and then, uh, okay, I don't remember where I was going with that exactly, but um, I think it, it's, I mean, you've got Satan too. It says he's transformed into an angel of light. And so it is certainly possible that, that there could be signs, there could be wonders, there could be a book that causes a a burning in the bosom. You know, even if it isn't just an emotional feeling, it still doesn't prove that the church is true. And so I just, I couldn't possibly um, take the risk of balancing my testimony on a church or, or my salvation on the high wire of subjective feeling that I get from taking Moroni's challenge, that is just too much of a risk for me. You know, it would have to line up with with the scriptures and it would have to be logically feasible as well. Like for me, the idea, like Moroni's challenge, it doesn't say anything about study the scriptures and and test it against the Bible. It's just not there because what they're trying to do is, you know, say you know just forget about all your objections forget about the logic and and this is the only thing that matters and and i just wouldn't be able to accept that at this point you know i view it very differently okay so um, uh,
1: one, one, one quick question and maybe maybe it's too much cuz we're already getting kind of late but you know a lot of saying we'll probably ask you in return if you're to say that well how do you know the bible's true you know, didn't, didn't, you pray about it? Like, how do you know it's true instead of the, the Quran or another holy book? And we've kind of talked about this in our second, uh, you know, our second series on what, what, what about scripture, but maybe just a quick rebuttal to that. How would you answer that, you know, the Bible is true if it's not just about praying about it?
2: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a big difference, first of all, between the evidence, you know, the manuscripts that we have between the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and it's not something that I just have to pray about because we've got the the Dead Sea Scrolls. We've got, you know, the text um, for the King James, you know, King James Bible. We've got, um, and then what they have is nothing for the Book of Mormon, just a convenient story that, that the angel Moroni took it from the earth. You know, they've, they've got, I guess, I, I used to kind of talk about the three witnesses, like it was this. Uh, full proof you know evidence that the Book of Mormon is you know this undefiled pure text, but you know even that testimony doesn't say that everything was that was written in that book was translated correctly, or you know so it just it just doesn't compare to the Bible at all it's apples to oranges they can't make that argument with me, so that's my quick rebuttal
1: yeah it, that's kind of what I would say too it's it seems like you're being. Latter-day Saints are asking us to believe the Book of Mormon with, without any evidence, and the Bible is saying, we're giving you plenty of evidence to believe it. There's, there's lots of good reasons to believe it, but at the end of the day, people will still reject it because of what it teaches, because of the content, the spiritual message that you cannot be saved without Christ. So there will still always be people that reject it, even with the evidence. Um, but, but God is not asking us to, to believe in something without any kind of support for it. It's, it's a rational faith that we're calling people to, to embrace.
2: Right. And then it, it goes against what the, uh, what the Bible says. So, I mean, if it might be a different story, you know, they might be able to sell me on it if it actually did align with the Bible a hundred percent, but even if it did, I'd probably still say, well, why do I need this book if, if it aligns with the Bible? So either it's not needed or it's false and you know that's that's one of the reasons we hold to the sufficiency of the word of god i mean and i know that what a mormon would say is like well i bet that you know if if revelation hadn't been written yet and you lived back then you wouldn't accept the book of revelation because you would be saying well then everything else wasn't sufficient before revelation so that's that's kind of what we're we're dealing with there and it is a tougher a tough argument so, I don't know if you guys have a rebuttal for that.
1: You mean the idea that if you're in the first century that you didn't have a complete Bible? So, how could you say scripture is sufficient? Is that kind of what you're saying?
2: Yeah, because that's what, what the apologists will say all the time mm-hmm. to us.
1: Well, and, I mean, it, like we talked about, there were still people with the gift of prophecy that were receiving revelation even as the new Testament was being written. So there was continuing. So there was kind of two sources of revelation, I guess you could say during that time, there was the revelation of God, the Holy spirit inspiring the the inspired authors of scripture, but there were still prophets in the church that were receiving revelation. Um, and Paul talks about that a lot in first Corinthians when he gives them directions as to how that's supposed to work. You know, you should only have two or three that speak, and they should speak one at a time. And if you're speaking in tongues, you should have an interpreter, that kind of thing. And then, um, yeah, so then, and, and even, it, it, like you said, there were a lot of people that, that didn't accept Revelation. It kind of took time. There's a really great series by Dr. Michael Kruger. He's kind of the expert on the New Testament canon. He's uh, There's a, a free series online, Reformed Theological Seminary. I guess I can leave the link in the, the description. Of, on the YouTube video, but it, he basically talks about how there was a core set of new Testament books that were accepted, you know, pretty much immediately, including the gospels. And then there were some that were accepted by some, but not by all. Some of them were contested. And then there were some that took a little bit longer to be accepted. So it, the, the development of the, the new Testament canon is a big topic to talk about. But even then, if you think about it, we have four gospels. They all pretty much teach the same stuff especially the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's not like you needed all of them to know the message of Christ. If you had one of them, you, you would have sufficient information to know who Christ is and to believe in Christ. So even without the entirety of either the 27 books of the New Testament or the 39 books of the Old Testament or all 66, if you didn't have all of them, you still have sufficient information to know who Christ is and to come to Christ for salvation. And that's the beauty of the Gospel. is like you don't need... 50-step program and all these, you know, millions of ordinances and commandments you have to live and you have to be attached to this one specific uh, organization, you know, the gospel is free. Faith and repentance in Christ is how we, how God gives us through grace, eternal life. So it's a very simple gospel. Even a child can understand it.
0: Well, it's, it's also another one of those double-edged swords, right? Because what are you, you going to say, you know, that when the 1835 Book of Commandments was published... Uh, by the LDS Church, that you know the the saints who later had the the broader doctrine and covenants that they you know the earlier saints didn't have the the whole truth. Uh, are you going to say today, uh, like President Nelson does, that the restoration is continuing? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's it's a double edged sword, right? Um, what you ultimately have to come down to is uh, is God sovereign? Is God acting in history? And if so, and if God is sovereign, then the way that God brought about the development of the New Testament canon and the closing of the canon is according to God's will. Otherwise, you're arguing that God is not sovereign over history. And I don't know that that even a Latter-day Saint would want to argue that, would they? I don't think so. I don't think so either.
1: And they accept the canon. It's funny too, because if you think about it, the New Testament canon wasn't finished or it wasn't, you know, widely universally accepted in, in, in its entirety until at least three or 400 AD, right? Well, if the church had already been an apostasy by the end of the first century, why should they trust the New Testament as we have it today? you know, it was, it was canonized by the the great and abominable church. <laughs> so why should we, why should they even accept the canon? Except for the fact that I guess Joseph Smith, it was, wasn't there a doctrine and covenant section where Joseph Smith prayed and said that the the Bible is the word of God. Well, I guess you do have that in articles of faith also, but, so I guess they do have an independent source of revelation to verify that. But anyway, that's just a thought that I had.
2: Yeah. All, uh, all really good thoughts, guys. Um, I'm just going to kind of jump to the, the last question here. and it's kind of the opposite of one of the other questions that we, we asked, but what, what advice would you give yourself if it was your last day on the mission and you were about to go home? We'll start with Matthew on this one.
1: There's a story that I wanted to tell you guys the other day that I thought about. So maybe I'll just briefly share it here. So uh, I had the same mission president throughout my entire mission until like the last month. And that was when we had a new mission president. So he was brand new in the mission you know, was still tr- getting his feet wet. He didn't really know any of the missionaries, and it was weird because I had my last interview with him, and uh, I was in the same city with uh, two sister missionaries that were also going home that same transfer. And um, to make it easier, he basically said he sent he set up the our final interviews on the same day, and my companion stayed in that city, Charleroi, in Belgium, and I went on the train with the other two sisters to the mission headquarters to talk to the president so everybody was giving me a hard time there was like six missionaries in the same building so all the missionaries were giving me a hard time being like hey enjoy your date with the sisters later <laughs> cuz it was such a weird experience going on that train on that train ride with those two sisters just us three is really weird um but uh so yeah I, I remember the last day going home and and being excited and scared and you know wanting to start college and all that other stuff. But, you know, I just say to myself, Hey, you know, going through what I knew what I went through after my mission was a really hard time. And so if I were to talk to myself, I would just say, look, you've, you've done a great thing with your mission and don't worry about feeling like you have to be the same person tomorrow as you are today, because things are going to drastically change. Your life is going to change. You spent two years doing what you felt was right and serving and, and doing missionary work, but That's not how it's, it's not going to be the same way after that. You know, your life's not, you're not going to be, you, you might want to be a missionary like you are now, but it's not going to be the same. So just go with that, understanding that, that uh, understanding that, and uh, don't worry about getting married immediately. Don't worry about, you know, the pressure of getting married as a, as a return missionary, you know, just, just stay focused on, on your life goals, you know, college and the things that you want to, set up for in the future and don't get down on yourself because I, I beat myself up every day when I got home, you know, I thought I had such a hard time. I was begging my Bishop for a calling and I felt like God was rejecting me. And I was like, what's going on? You know, I just felt like I I tried to serve the Lord the best I could and just nothing was going right for me. So just like, just to comfort, you know, comfort myself and say, Hey, you know, it's going to be rough, but it doesn't mean you're a bad missionary. It doesn't mean you're, you know, you're a terrible person or that, you know, that, that you brought God's wrath upon you or something, it's going to be a hard time adjusting to home life and it's going to take time. And so you just need to be patient and not beat yourself up over it. So that's probably what I would say.
2: All right. Um, hope you don't mind Paul, but I'm going to jump in the middle of this one and, and let you end because you always finish the strongest. (laughs) Um, but I think, I think if I, if I was talking to myself and it was my last day on my mission, a couple of things that I would tell myself is, First of all, like, hey, you're about to go into the dating world. Don't use the same tactics that you're using as a Mormon missionary. That's creepy. Uh, the next thing I would say is don't but expect Michael, to
1: be... Yeah. But it worked, right? You've married every person you've dated. 100% yes, conversion I've only, rate. I've
2: only dated two people because <laughs> I couldn't get a second date. <laughs> um, I would say don't expect to be you know, a celebrity anymore or even really cared about that much after a month of going home, you know, people just aren't going to view you that way anymore, you know? Uh, and then I'd probably say, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to come up. Um, you know, like I ended up working, working for a, one of the leaders of, of the local church and uh, realized that he was a very different man in the workplace than he was at, was at church. So one of the things I would tell myself is do examine the fruits um, the fruits matter. Don't just sweep them under the rug. I mean, I was very much, you know, blind to that. I was like, it's all the doctrine. It doesn't matter how bad the people are. Um, but, but the truth is that enough fruit does indicate that something is wrong. You know, a good tree cannot produce bitter fruit. And so I would say that's something that you need to look at. And then last of all, I would say that um, I wouldn't give myself the the solution <laughs> You know i wouldn't tell myself about imputed righteousness i don't think but i think i might give myself the problem and say um you know you've you really started to you know learn about doctrine and and learn about debating with with evangelicals and there's this there's this one problem that is going to be your life's challenge and you need to learn how to come up with an answer for it and that is the impossible gospel argument and i would probably just tell myself what that is and uh, and just leave myself with that, because I know that that would be the catalyst eventually for me uh, leaving the church and, and finding more truth, learning about, you know, forensic righteousness and, and double imputation. So that's what I would tell myself.
0: All right. So this is a tough question. Um, going home from my mission was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Uh, I really in those two years came to love the Hungarian people, the Hungarian culture, uh, my companions, the the regimen of being a missionary, day in and day out, uh, in and out of the apartment, uh, you know, going to appointments, knocking on doors, talking to people on the street. Um, I'd really come to love it. And so making that transition back to normal life was tough. And you guys talked about that. Both of you did. Um, So I'm going to focus uh, some advice on what I would say to my younger self or any missionary uh, from the Latter-day Saint faith uh, going home from their mission. I would say that you've spent two years uh, trying to teach people that a church saves, uh, a particular church saves. And I would say that no church saves. Uh, I talked about it earlier. You know, there are people sitting in the pews of every congregation, be it uh, any of the Orthodox Christian uh, denominations or uh, those that are, you know, outside of theological orthodoxy. Um, there are people sitting in, in the pews of every church that you may pass driving down a road uh, who are not saved, who have not been born again. Um, the New Testament is very clear that the experience of being born again is an experience with the son, uh, having been drawn to him by the father. And if you look through the pages of the New Testament and read through it, every experience that a, that an individual has with the son is by the drawing of the father to the son. It's not a church, and I'm not arguing that church— that a, That being part of a local church and being engaged as a believer in a local church is not important. The New Testament teaches that is also very important. Um, But being part of a church is not what saves you. And as a missionary, you've just spent two years of your life teaching people that it is. And I would challenge you to, in your mind and in your study, challenge that premise and see what you find. All right, that's a wrap. Recently, we sat down with a special guest Jordan Rittmeyer is a full-time Christian missionary to the Latter-day Saint people with Tri-Grace Ministries in Ephraim, Utah. We'll be releasing our conversation with Jordan as a bonus episode on Wednesday, September 30th. You'll want to join us, Fireflies.
1: We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook, where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon.
2: You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel. And if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word.
0: You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well.
2: Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Stay bright, fireflies.